0: hello hey John how are you
1: hi Dan hi I have uh, I've got a little something in my mouth I'm just gonna chew it here for a okay. second
0: Hang um on. so I uh, I had the occasion to go on to Instagram today which is not I have not been on Instagram in a very extended period of time maybe since October of, of 2019. No, maybe, no, maybe yep. November. And uh, right, 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 so I hadn't been there for a long time. And I, um, I had occasion to go because the tattoo artist that I wanted to book with, that is the only way that he will book. So I had to go His on Instagram. Yeah. A lot of tattoo artists use Instagram to promote themselves and their booking happens through like direct messages on Instagram. A lot of people, uh, a lot of them, not all of them. Um, But, you know, I think tattoo artists and musicians, as far as how they approach technology, it's pretty similar in that, like, they just do, they like, I have, I promote my stuff over Instagram. So that's how I run my whole business is just over Instagram. Of course. And, uh, and so the guy that I was scheduling with, um, that was the only way I get in touch. Like he has an email, but that's like once a month, he'll like go to the Apple store and log in kind of thing. (laughs) So he's just, (laughs) he's just not. Not using his uh, his uh, his email, so I had to go on this there, and I think this was early. I was up kind of early this morning. This is like six thirty in the morning, and mm-hmm. uh, and it, I noticed when I you know when you when you sign on, I don't have the app anymore, so I was doing it through the browser, and it showed like a little list of my my buddies, my friends, and the direct messages when you go in there, mm-hmm. and I saw the yep. I saw your avatar, and it had the little green symbol next to it and it said active right now and i looked at the end at the time and it was like 6 30 my time and i thought to myself it's 4 30 and john's still awake and on instagram
1: yeah
0: and uh, i yes. i liked that i thought i was good i feel like between the the, the two of us together i have a 24 hour watch on everything that's going on in the world we never. There's no gaps. There's no breaks. I don't think there's ever a time where both of us are asleep.
1: That's entirely possible, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, I um, uh, I watch the nights for us, Dan, and you right. get up and you have That's the, right. you 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 take the lantern from me, <laughs> and like those two dogs the in the Warner
0: Brothers, uh, cartoon <laughs> with with uh, the
1: the what what
0: were those sheep dogs? The sheep dogs? The two sheep dogs? You remember that one? Mm-hmm.
1: That's mm-hmm. us. I sure do. Go, good night, Ralph. Sure do. Good night, Frank, or whatever you know. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's great. That Ralph and Frank is what I would have said too. <laughs> it, may that, not be, it may not be true, but I think that's what I would have said. I think that I'm going to
0: look it up. I'm going to look <laughs> it up now.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean,
0: like, what time do you do you think you go to bed? I'm sorry. Ra- I'm, Ralph, I'm Wolf a homie. And, <laughs>
1: Ralph Wolf and Sam Sheepdog. Sam. That's right. Ralph and Sam. Sam. <laughs> uh, I always forget Sam. <laughs> uh, you know, last night I went to sleep at what I thought was a pretty reasonable hour, about 4 30. Yeah. And then I went to sleep, fully went to sleep, because I had a brief dream. Mm. And the dream, you know, and then I kind of. Woke up from the dream at about five thirty, and the dream—it <clears throat> wasn't that the dream unsettled me, but waking up from it kind of unsettled me. Hmm. And um, and so I turned the light back on, and I l- watched uh, videos of people doing s- like. Crazy ski jumps and uh like ski tricks until about six thirty. Mm. At which point I've realized that watching ski jump tricks is a thing that takes very, very little energy. I'll watch <laughs> ski jump tricks. <laughs>
0: And as for the, for those who are just tuning in for the first time, you you have a whole a lifetime of skiing in your in your uh, in your. You've been skiing since you were young, and you were very good at one point. And your sister was very good.
1: Yeah, but you know, jumps. I think in all of in all of those sports, motorcycles, skiing, snowboarding, water skiing. You know, being good at it and being good at jumps are um overlapping skills but they can be separate skills i was very good at skiing i was not especially good at jumps jumps are just a different in a way a different support like a bunny hop no like a like where you You hurl yourself off a thing and you fly through the air. Oh, like I, oh
0: yes. And like a flip and all that trick.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You do some kind of trick. Now when I was young, the tricks were fairly, uh, like circumspect relative to what they are now. Like you would jump and you would do a back scratcher or you (laughs) would do a spread Eagle, um, And then I think somewhere in the mid 80s, you know, people around me started to learn how to do a helicopter
2: Mm.
1: or a, um, what was the, what did we call it when you did a split? Um, It had a name too, but like, you know, there were these kind of hot dogging tricks that you would do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never knew anyone in my whole life that did a flip and landed it.
2: Mm.
1: Like there were people that, um, did like, I don't know, well, we, we would do flips and do what, what, we called sits marks where you would just, you would intentionally land on your butt in a big bowl of powder. But nowadays, like I, I remember freshman year in high school, I was talking to a kid who was into BMX bikes. M. Mm-hmm. I asked him, have you ever taken a BMX bike or no, I think I said, has anyone ever taken a BMX bike on a skateboard ramp? Cause I just conceived of it, you know, like, whoa, what if you took a BMX bike on a skateboard ramp? <laughs> and this guy leaned in and said, people have done it. And I was like, whoa, no way. And he was like, yeah. Imagine that for a second, why don't you? And I was like, "Wow, a BMX bike on a skateboard ramp!" Whoa. <laughs> so you know, I watched extreme sports get invented, kind of. Right. Not not right in not right in front of me, but during my lifetime, we went from a period where where people first skateboarded in a swimming pool to when people first flew above the coping. Mm-hmm. Um, to a time now when you can watch videos all night long of people doing the most extreme s- jumps and s- like crazy tricks, just tricks that, that you wouldn't even have been able to conceive of, but you watch enough of these videos that you realize there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that can do these tricks. Just. Bonkers, hur- hurling themselves off of cliffs that we would have thought were like death cliffs, and it's just one after another. Twenty-four-year-old goes off of it, not only goes off of it, but does a seven-twenty, lights a cigarette, makes a phone call, and is videotaping themselves the whole time. And it's just like I don't know what happened in terms of br- like bravery. Mm-hmm. And what happened in terms of athleticism,
2: Mm.
1: but I don't, I don't think, and I, you know, and I was stupid brave and I knew people who were ridiculously brave, um, and, and ridiculously athletic, but, but the sort of incremental growth in ability so that 10 years ago, there were people who were at the total like outside edge of their sport that now would just be normals, regulars, you know, any, 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 uh, any competent high school kid can, can do half a dozen tricks that, that 10 years ago would have been at the, at the edge of the envelope. And that when I was 19, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't have even dreamed that your little GI Joe could do it. Somebody do it. You know, do a nine eighty or whatever. Like, whoa! How you have to slow the video down and count the revolutions, and that's not even the most amazing part of the trick. So I'm a, I love watching them. I have no, I have no firsthand experience of what it's like to be inverted, in control, flying. But I. But, but that was my sport, you know, or those, those were sports that I did all those kinds of like agro biking, riding, flying sports. And I find it very, I find those videos very relaxing, even the ones where people are, are crashing. Cause I really do know what it's like to crash in all those scenarios. Right. I've crashed as hard as you can crash. The thing is what I, what these videos don't show is all the people crashing and getting fantastically hurt, uh, experimenting with these videos, with these, with these moves, trying, trying these moves out. And I watched one last night of a guy jumped off a cliff and his intention was to do a backflip, but he'd never done a backflip before. (laughs) You can tell. Yeah. And it was a tall enough cliff. You know, it was, he jumped, it was some 60 foot. Uh, jump into a, um, into a quarry and he goes off, you know, he gets a good launch and right as he's jumping, you you see that he wants to initiate a black, a backflip, but he goes out and he, he's just the whole time in the air. He's just like this little baby just trying, trying desperately to get, to come around, you know, like you could, feel him with his head and shoulders just trying to <clears throat> go go why am i not continuing to go around mm-hmm. and he in this in the space of this in this very long drop he does have the time to rotate his feet up over his head and then down just in time to completely flat belly <laughs> slam on the water oh man
0: we would like to say thank you very much to indeed one of the greatest challenges we all face is Taking all the information that's available and knowing where to focus, it's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people, and like I said, it gets them to you as fast as possible. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring, so you only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time. There are no long-term contracts. It's simple. And plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like uh, sponsored jobs, for example. This is a cool feature. They're shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. And with 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, it's gonna get you the important hire that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. So right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit, It'll boost your job post, and that means more quality candidates will see it, and they'll see it faster. So you can try Indeed out with that free $75 credit by going to Indeed, I-N-D-E-E-D, Indeed.com slash roadwork. This is their best offer, available anywhere. Go right now, Indeed.com slash roadwork. Going there supports the show, and while you're there, you're going to save yourself some, some money, 75 bucks, in fact. Not bad. They want me to tell you that terms and conditions apply and that the offer is valid through September 30th. So that's it. Go check out Indeed, and thanks very much to them for making this show possible.
1: And, you know, I know what that felt like. Or I mean, I have an inkling, both of not knowing how to actually complete the move that you initiated, and second, how, to, you know, how it feels to, to completely slam but I found it very relaxing <laughs> to watch over and over. And I mean, and each time I winced yeah. on, on this person's behalf. I mean, you're not like, a monster. No, but I don't, uh, I don't sleep very soundly and I have a lot of, um, last couple of years I've, as, as I think we've talked about, I've experienced some considerable free floating anxiety that I never had before. Two years ago, especially I was, uh, and last year, even I think really trying to work through these clouds of anxiety that would just sort of appear in the room. And all of a sudden there, you know, the, all the escape doors were locked, you know, it was just like, Oh no stuff. I'd never, I'd never confronted before, but I also have a lot of anxiety right now. That's just rooted in reality. And it's very hard to, this is the thing with, with regular mental illness for me uh, was the problem was always like, some of this is real. Some of, some of my problems are real. Oh yeah. And some of them are, are, um, are ginned up (laughs) and they kind of feel the same. I feel the same. Meaning you can't tell which one is, which one is real and which one is, is ginned up. No, uh, you, you can't tell them by feeling them alone. Okay. You can tell if you look at them and go, is there a dragon in the room? No. Am I dying right now? No. Do I owe someone $200? Yes. So the so the feeling that I have that I owe someone $200 is real, but the one about me being uh, chased by dragons is not so, but they feel the same. And um And, you know, your, what your mental illness wants to tell you that that means that the dragons are real because it feels the same as the thing that is real. Right. Uh, and lately I haven't been feeling a ton of the, uh, the free floating variety of just like, oh no, we're all going to die, but I'm going to die soon. And in a worse way or any of that stuff. But I do have a big, big, big and growing, it feels like, pile of real things in real life that are that I'm justifiably mm-hmm. anxious and um and agonizing over, anxious about and agonizing over. All of them have to do with my house, my you know, my still unfinished house.
0: Still and honestly, unfinished, and I still know, unfinished after all this time. That's right. I don't know.
1: Um, I don't know wh- how, what the sort of clinical description of misery loves company is. But the only thing that helps me right now is hearing people. It's hearing other people tell me how long it took to fix their house. You know, any other attempt that people have made to like, oh, it's all going to be fine. It, it, uh, it uh, that stuff just infuriates me. It's mm-hmm. only hearing people say, oh, when we went to replace our bathroom, oh, you should took us a year and a half. And the guy left with a briefcase full of money. And then the house burned down and our dog died. And, you know, it's only stories like that where I'm like, oh, okay, well, great. Your dog died. Oh, okay. Well, my dog hasn't died. So I guess, you know, I'm not in the, in the bottom 1% of people that have ever tried to fix up a house. Mm-hmm. But, it, but, it, but when I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a, and something unsettles me it in particular in the middle of the night is when I'm the most vulnerable to those little gremlins stepping into what was formerly an empty room. Like, Whoa, I just, I woke up, you know, I had a, I, I had a dream and there was someone in the, you know, there was someone in the dream that I hadn't thought about in a long time enough so that it kind of woke me up. And now I'm sitting here in the dark and, and, uh, and a little person in a, in a workman's outfit steps into the room and says, which one of these two fixtures would you like us to order tomorrow? By the way, neither is available. And I just go, Oh, oh. now I'm awake. And yeah. if I sit here and and think about this, I'm going to spiral out of control. So I'd better watch some videos of some people ski crashing <laughs> and uh and just hope that I can you know that I can manage to hold on to that until I effectively pass out.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. That's not good. Well, no, it's not fun. No, it's not fun. And how I, often
0: is this happening, this kind of thing happening?
1: Oh, uh, every hour, um, all, all day and night. I mean, I'm, I'm in a place right now where I don't I own a house and I don't live in it and I don't see the end. The end isn't in sight. And the end isn't in sight because I probably picked the wrong contractors. I probably went into it without a good enough plan. I don't know how to ask for help. I don't, when I do ask for help, um, I find that, you know, the responses I get from people are sort of not helpful. People try and help and, and I, and it doesn't help. I'm not good at project managing. And I'm in a situation where I have a, I have workmen, but I don't have a project manager. And partly, you know, kind of like on, uh, like I do with making my own records, I put myself in the job of project manager because I want to be in charge of the decisions. But I need a, I need a manager, you know, somebody, somebody to execute in stages, someone to, to um, be aware of the fact that this person over here is working, but they're going to need something that that person over there has to have done by this date. And none of those are, are my skill set, but I don't have an executor.
0: Like you're not, you're not a project
1: manager is what you're saying or a contractor. Not at all. But the people that I hired were, um, an old friend of mine has, um, who was actually the first ever bass player in the long winters works in the trades and has done a lot of work for my mom over the years. Um, and you know, he and I are on again, off again in contact. We've had several fallings out over the years, fallings out that were mostly to do with a kind of platonic love for each other. When i when I first got sober, um, I came back to Seattle uh, against everyone's advice. I, I got sober in Anchorage and I was up there for a month or more, just kind of drying out, going to the doctor, um, going to meetings, just trying to establish a new baseline of, of, uh, going from being on drugs to not being on drugs. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm a, I'm a white knuckler, right? Like if I break a bone and I make the determination that nothing can be done about it, mm-hmm. I don't go try and do something about it. You know, I don't go to the doctor and say, I broke a bone in a place that you can't do anything about it and have the doctor go, can't do anything about it. Right. You just, you know, that I just step. sort of put some, yeah, I put some tape on it and I, and I figure like, well, if it, if it heals funky, the chances are that that's what was going to happen anyway. Like, you know, kind of high pain threshold and kind of a go-it-alone mentality. And Alcoholics Anonymous helped me a lot. But, you know, I wasn't going to – I was going to tough it out. And, and you know, and my mom is a tough-it-outer and my dad too. And although they both did not want me to go back to Seattle, they wanted me to stay and go to treatment or – what I don't know what they wanted. They wanted me to – they wanted to be able to to – watch me but also like feed me and Mm -hmm. everybody felt like going back to seattle was i was just going to go right back into the lap of all of the drug dealers and Mm -hmm. and all the seedy life that i'd only been gone from for a couple of months at that point all right but i was like i cannot just live in anchorage i'm not like, yeah, I'm all screwed up, but I'm not going to be some guy 25 years old who's living in his mom's basement and like limping around. I got to go back. I have to go back to Seattle and get back in it. And I also have to stay sober. And those two things I can do. And nobody believed it was possible. And I, I flew back to Seattle and had a pretty bumpy start. Yeah. Most of my stuff was I I was, I'd been, well, I was, I went back to my girlfriend who was not a drug addict. Um, and all my stuff was kind of under her bed and I, I'd never lived with her or lived with anybody, but Mm -hmm. I like I had nowhere to go. So I kind of moved in with her, but it only lasted a couple of weeks before she was, I think she would have been fine if I'd lived there. But I was like, I can't do this. You know, like, I can't just, this is, the walls are closing in. (laughs) And I went out and started couch surfing again, which is what I'd been doing when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I lost my last like address in about September of that year, which would have been 94, And I got sober around Christmas time. So I'd had, um, you know, whatever, three months, um, three or four months where I just had finally like given up the ghost, like, because I'd been bouncing from kind of flop house to flop house, but I hadn't just had no place to live. And it wasn't even like somebody had a, had a car I could crash in. It was just like, I had no place to live for that last four months. or four months, September, October, November, December, four months. But then I came back to Seattle and I didn't have, I wasn't on drugs and didn't have a place to live. And so I was couch surfing and, you know, wandering around all day and kind of sleeping on the couch in the cafe after, you know, they'd, the people at the cafe would be like, okay, we're locking up. And I'd say, would it be cool if I just crashed on the couch until morning? And they'd be like, oh man, you know, you get away with stuff, right? You'd get away yeah. with that a couple of times, right? Uh, but not, not the, not the third day, you know. Just kind of, kind of employing that, like, hey, it's kind of, I'm in a tricky situation. Can I do this for a couple of nights? But never trying or succeeding at putting together like a, like a, uh, an authorized place in the, in the bottom of somebody's closet. But there was a, there was a house and it was behind the uh, bar called Ernie Steeles and it was like a group house that had a, a bunch of people that I that I vaguely knew living in it and I knew them through a hundred different paths you know if there're probably five people living in the house I knew each one of them I didn't know them through each other I knew each one of them via some connection to somebody else And like a, like a lot of things at that time in my life it was just, they just bumped into somebody on the sidewalk that day and was like, where are you going? And they were like, Oh, I'm going over here. And I followed them to that. And we did that thing for a while. And then they were like, why don't you come over and we'll, you know, I'll make you a cup of coffee or something. And I went over to their house and, and and then I realized, Oh, your roommate is this person. I know this person. And then the third person came in, Hey, I know you. And then we all sat around and at the end of the day I said, Hey, would you guys mind if I just crashed here tonight? And they were like, sure, of course and it was it was interesting because looking back at it this was the first time that i kind of s- crashed at somebody's house where no one in the house was on drugs really up until that point there all the connection had always been that you know that i was chasing getting high followed somebody Somewhere that person introduced me to somebody that was that I, where I felt like I had a better chance of getting high if I followed that person, you know, this type of thing. It was all I was always chasing, the, chasing that, chasing the like, like water going down a hillside, just always looking for the lowest depression to determine my path. But this day I had followed a person because, and at this point I'd been now sober for. I don't know, uh, half a dozen months. Maybe it was the spring of that year, and and the entire time just sleeping on people's couches. That's crazy, John. I'm like, um, I'm
0: worried about you. Listening to you talk about this, I'm worried. And you've done this well, already, and you're not doing it now,
1: but it worries me. Well, it was. It was. Um, Does that make sense? I wasn't really. It does. (laughs) I wasn't really anxious because, you know, every day there's a kind of anxiousness that that attends everything because I don't, I don't have a place to go that belongs to me. I can't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't ever close my door and shut out the world and be like, this is my, this is my room. Right. But I also had no place I had to be. Mm -hmm. And so I had an unlimited amount of alone time and freedom from others because I wasn't beholden to anybody except beholden to whoever it was that was, you know, whatever the the tricky exchange of can I crash on your couch tonight and and now that you've said yes, does that include a bowl of soup? And before I got sober, it was does that include a hit of your Drugs, you know, like, right? Can I crash at your place? And also, I don't have any money. And also, do you have any drugs? After I wasn't looking for drugs, it was much more like, can I have a little bit of that soup? And it's 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 embarrassing because it's such a moocher culture, such a uh, like a moocher economy. I was effectively mooching constantly. And that's a, that's a terrible look. It's very embarrassing to recall. It was embarrassing at the time because what I was trading for that bowl of soup and that crash on the floor was storytelling. And, and, you know, just the kind of thing that I, that I still trade on now. Just friendship and, and I'm a good listener And I'm a, you know, and I'm a good interrogator and I'd meet somebody, I'd start talking to them and, you know, and I wasn't doing it. I, I had not. And part of the reason that I stopped, that I, that I knew that I needed to, to quit drugs was that I felt myself becoming more and more of a pimp and a prostitute Ah. in the sense that I was not, I never wanted ever listen to someone tell a story and to be thinking while they were telling the story, be thinking about like, how am I going to get this person's wallet? Right. It's like a, it's like, that's what, that's what, a th- that's the transition to being a thief or a transition to being a, a dealer or a criminal or a, is, is that you have turned your charm into a tool and then. All of the fun of the, of the thing goes away and it gets directed into just it being a a functional tool. And so you're sitting and you're listening to somebody tell the story of their great heart, heartbreak. But what you're really doing is scanning the room for anything that's not tied down. And I never (laughs) wanted to be that person. And I, and I couldn't because I had, because my, whatever I, I was raised with this strange, like, Quaker ethic, where I felt like it was a fair exchange that you, that I could crash on your couch in exchange for, um, and, and this is, this is the other thing that that makes a lot of sense when you're 24. It's hard now to know how much sense it makes really, but anybody that's in theater or entertainment or whatever, you're all, you always have to do some kind of math to explain why it is that the thing that you are good at and like to do is something that someone else would pay money for. Mm -hmm. Right? Like you, you pick up the guitar, you start to sing, you do it because you want to. Very few people do it because they're like, this is the path to riches. (laughs) <laughs> it's only somewhere along the way that you realize, Oh money, you know, I can get money for this. And the scale of people, you know, it, the, it's a, it's a, it's an almost, it's a scale that has no top or bottom in terms of the degree to which people are compensated for picking up a guitar and singing. Right, right now somewhere there's a, there's someone in the world who is playing a guitar and singing a song in exchange for a cigarette and simultaneously there's someone playing a song and singing and they are getting $100,000 to play that one song and sing it. Right. And if you put the two of them together in the, in a, in a room and said like, okay, you sing your song and now you sing your song. It's not, it's not that much different. There was a guy that used to come for about a month, one summer on Broadway, there was this kind of homeless guy who had a sort of makeshift guitar. And this was when I was working at Steve's Broadway news after I'd gotten sober, you know, five years later and he, he pulled up in front of my store with his little makeshift guitar. And usually, you know, that, that store was open to the street and it was busy and it was loud and it was a kind of tempting little alcove for somebody to, at first blush look at and say oh i'm going to put my little stool there and play the harmonica but it the, the alcove was actually constantly in play there were newspapers on racks there uh sometimes five or six people jammed up in that entryway it just wasn't an alcove that was that was you were that you were going to be able to occupy and sell your socialist worker newspaper or or play the or play the digit to And so usually as soon as I saw somebody setting up, I would go out and say like, hey, this is actually not going to be, I mean, I know there's a bus stop right there, but too many people coming and going for you to, to, um, set up shop here. But this guy, he kind of, you know, he kind of like edged out of what I considered like my, um, 100% authority zone. And he was over in my 94% authority zone when he did this. So I, I kind of watched it. And he picked up this guitar and set himself up and he played a song and it was an incredible song. He had a great voice. He had a great, everything about it was a song that, it was a hit song, frankly. And a hit song in a, like almost an eternal vernacular, like a folk music song that if it, if it were a Simon and Garfunkel tune, we would all know it. And I listened to him (laughs) sing this song and I was like, this is clearly a homeless person. (laughs) And he's probably 40. And, you know, I was 27 at the time. So I was like, he's 40. So basically like he belongs in a home. (laughs) He played this song and he got to the end and, you know, people were throwing quarters in his hat. And, um, A few minutes went by, you know, and I'm, I'm doing business. I'm transacting business at the shop, ringing people up for their copy of the Manchester Guardian or whatever. And he lets five minutes go by and he plays the song again, the one song. And I was like, the second time through, it was better than the first. And so when he gets done the second time, I walked out and said, Hey, what's your name? Like, what's your story? What's tell me about your music. And he kind of, you know, friendly, well-spoken um, sort of told me his story and that there might've been a Vietnam vet component maybe, or, <laughs> of course. you know, there was some kind of um, some I'm sort like, of story about it. Do and, you
0: think we're, we're Vietnam vets of, of the homeless population when we were young? And in, 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 at least through our 20s. I think it was a lot.
1: Uh, it was a lot. It yeah. was a lot. If you think about 1990, um, in 1990, there were an awful lot of Vietnam vets that were 40,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Or, or younger, late 30s. And um, so... Yeah, this guy could have been 45 and he could have done two tours in, in Vietnam and had been, you know, and been struggling along ever since. Um, and you know, seemed like a, seemed like a young enough guy, somebody that you, you maybe wouldn't run into at a, at a grunge party, but I, I certainly had a lot in common with him. And he kind of, uh, you know, he took his hat full of coins that day. He gave me some, he gave me some story about some bullshit story or whatever, but no, nothing where I felt like I was being misled, just some, some, hagiography. Hey, but he wandered off. And then the next day, kind of in the afternoon, he showed back up and set up out front and played his song again. And over the course of a couple of weeks, I saw him over and over. I talked to him many times. Uh, got to know him a little bit so that he would come into the store and say hi and, you know, right. and say, hey, is it cool if I'm out here for a little bit and all this. But he only had the one song. And I didn't understand <laughs> it. I still don't. <laughs> why, I still don't understand. Why only the one, though?
0: I mean, did you ever get he an just, answer? He,
1: no, he just had, he just had, he wrote one song and it was really good. It was a really good song when he tried to play other things that weren't that one song it's not like he had a bunch of other songs that were bad he didn't really have any other music he would pluck along on the guitar he would hum he would you know put chords together whistle i never heard him play a second song <laughs> i don't but, know why it's just know, funny to me <laughs> if you put that guy playing that one song against Uh, against, you know, Paul Simon playing the sound of silence. Right. I think you, I think your average person would still say the sound of silence was better, but you know, Paul Simon has absolutely certainly been paid $100,000 to sing the sound of silence one time, probably at somebody's wedding. Oh, for sure. And, uh, and this guy was playing his one song for, for nickels and dimes. So the, the, the point I'm making is that I was conscious even then a long time before I ever had a band or really wrote a song or had done anything worthwhile in life. I was conscious of those exchanges being somehow equitable because I was providing a service and that service was entertainment. And I, and I, I was never cynical about it in the sense that I would go and like do a do a minstrel show or, you know, like perform for my food or anything like that. (laughs) I just knew that I was, I was fun to have there. Mm -hmm. I was fun to have around and that people had for many, many, many years been willing to let me crash on their couch in exchange for the amount of fun that I brought. Mm -hmm. But I was not so fun that they were willing to let me crash on their couch for four days right i knew exactly what my what my amount of what my value was absolutely that first night they were thrilled to have me in a lot of cases like oh dude dude no you crash here crash here because you know a lot of times i'd be like well i gotta get going i gotta go find a place to stay and they would say no 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 don't go stay here and the next day you know, wake up, oh, here, let me, you know, I made pancakes. Like, you know, it was, there was always a fun exchange of like, you stay here, this has been great. And by, you know, by day three, the thing is that i also have always been the same way. I, you know, I didn't make any attempt to, I wasn't somebody that came in and was like, let me do some chores around here. You know, I kind of put my feet up and was like, is this, uh, what, menthols? I can't smoke menthols. You know, like I, I was always a pain in the ass in addition to being fun. So yeah, day three people are like, so are you, you know, so what's your plan is usually how it started. But this one time, this one day that I ended up at this house over on East Thomas, it was the first time I'd ever showed up at a place like that where I was, I run into somebody that I, that I knew from around that I liked. I knew they weren't, I was, I wasn't trying to get high. I was, I was, uh, I was sober at this point and I wasn't even, I wasn't even trying to, I wasn't trying to do anything. I was just following this person to their place cause we'd had an, an interesting conversation that afternoon. We got there. I saw a bunch of other people in their house that I knew. I felt welcomed And when someone said, why don't you crash here? It was the, in a way it was the first, it was a little bit of a tragic moment because it was kind of the first time that I'd ever felt like I wanted to be there. Like I want, this is where I wanted to be. I wanted to stay in this house. This wasn't a place where when they said, why don't you stay here? that I went, Oh, whew. Well, I figured that out for tonight. It was something else. It was like, I don't want to mess this up. Like I want to be, I want up until that point, I guess I had never said like, this is what I want my life to look like. I'd never looked at anything and said like, why don't I have that? Or could I wish that I had a house like this or a girlfriend like that or whatever, you know, I went to a, I I would go to places where people were living in old warehouses and I would say, well, it'd be cool if I could have a corner over there. And (laughs) generally they would say no, (laughs) but this was like a nice house and it was boys and girls living together. Um, there were, um, two girls and three boys. And I knew, I knew everybody. I knew all five people. And so I stayed the night there and, you know, I think by day three, I said, Hey, can I, there's like a, there's like an alcove at the top of the stairs. That's not really, uh, a, it's not a room, but nobody's using it for anything. It's the kind of area in an old house that you, that like a, that if it was a group house that five people would all put their bikes there, except it was at the top of the stairs. So kind of a bad place to put five bikes, not really big enough. Maybe you could have put a a chair there, like a comfortable chair. And I said, what if I, you know, I've got a sleeping bag. Like, what if I just like crashed in that alcove? And I don't think anybody in the house was thrilled about it, (laughs) but it also, (laughs) you know, like I say, like, you know, I'm, f- I'm fun to have around. I'm like a good, I'm a good in a group of five people. I'm a nice leavening agent or, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting sixth. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> cause I, cause I, you know, I tend not to take sides. Often I'll be the element that brings a group of people together because they all come together to expel me from the situation. Or, you know, like I'm the person, that makes everybody else realize how much they all had in common with one another as they try to figure out all the ways, you know, as they try to work out how they're going to get me to leave. Right. But in this house, you know, it became a very formative house for me. Um, one of the two girls became my girlfriend, Laurel, Laurel Aaron And Laurel was my first sober girlfriend. I've talked about Laurel a lot over the years although I probably um, shrouded her in code a lot of the time but Laurel was a a dancer from Cornish College of the Arts and you know a um, uh, just a, a person though, just is in the light in a way, you know, the, the, the light just shines on her in a different way. And, um, you know, just an incredibly charismatic, smart, and like a person full of life and not without a lot of challenges, you know, she, conf- she has a lot to confront, but she just br- brings a lot of light into any room she's in. And uh, another person that lived in that house was Chris Canelia who played uh, keyboards in the long winters for the first year of the band. And, you know, Chris was somebody that I'd known when I was getting high. He was a, he was a figure. He was kind of this person that, that came in and out of my life, like, a, like a 10,000 others. but, the, my first real love was this boy named Peter hmm. and Peter was, I think you told, have you talked about Peter before in this show? I, I must've. I think you have. Cause P- Peter was very important to me. He was a, you know, he, it, he was this beautiful sort of Scandinavian, um, like, super intense kind of um, person who uh, had, you know, had that Nordic reticence, never cracked a smile. He was extremely funny, but never, never found a reason to smile Mm -hmm. really um, because life was so full of tragedy. Uh, Just, you know, some, some real, real sort of Kierkegaardian kind of, Temperature to him, tall, elegant, um, like broadly talented, could sing, could dance, could play, play music, could act, could he just, you know, kind of moved with grace through the world. Um, someone that a lot of people fell in love with right away, but who was really haunted and, you know, upper middle class guy from a big family Mm -hmm. but just haunted something happened and you know that was at a time in our lives in the in the 1990s when we were all trying to look at our childhoods and figure out what had happened in our childhoods that made us who we were and there are plenty of things that that any of us could have pointed to and said like well you know this is the way i was raised and that's why i am who i am peter had those things just the same way that i did but but no, there was something else, you know, like, and, and, and in his, his whole family, you know, there's some vein of of darkness, like in a lot of our families, that runs through and it kind of hits different people in the family in different ways. But but Peter became my best friend. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I'd only been sober a few months, and I didn't know what to do do like i didn't understand what people did period what <laughs> um, <laughs> i i didn't <laughs> what you do you know, mean I, didn't, I mean my life was always structured around like if i could be in college if i could be in school of any kind if i could be taking lessons from anyone then i had a purpose which was to follow this person or this path or this stack of books And consume it in order to learn more. And so all you needed to do was put somebody in front of me and say, here's your, um, you know, here's your Jedi Padawan. And I would be like, great. The problem is that it didn't happen very often. I, I very seldom met people in the world that I really, really looked at and said, like, I want to learn from you. Like, Mm -hmm. let me be your apprentice. In a way I, I look back at my life and it's my one regret that I didn't apprentice more often to to people who were who had something to teach me. Were, it was just, were you I as opposed know, was,
0: to the concept of apprenticeship as I was in in its like fundamental philosophy or or was there another reason?
1: I don't think I think when I moved into this neighborhood that I'm living in now, mm-hmm. on the surface of it. It, it's very hard to it's very hard to question the decision uh, you walk into this neighborhood you look around wide streets quiet there's an elementary school two blocks from my house there's an old-fashioned neighborhood swim club a block from my house as you walk around you see bikes in people's lawns like on the surface moving to this neighborhood was a was a great. Decision because I have a nine-year-old and I wanted her to have this, uh, this area, you know, the, the, to have this kind of life where we walk to school in the morning. And when, when I found this neighborhood, that seemed like the most incredible dream relative to the hour, each way we were spending in the car in terrible Seattle traffic every morning and night, just trying to get to and from school. We're going to walk to school. Wow. You know there wasn't, there wasn't a challenge to that idea. It it seemed genius, but having bought this house and having lived in this neighborhood now for a year and a half, I realized that, well, the street that we're actually on here is, it's not a kid desert, but all the kids on this street are four. They're all four years old and I have a nine year old and you realize how much of life is just a roll of the dice because three streets over or a quarter of a mile from here somewhere in some direction, there's a street where there are five kids between the ages of nine and and 11. And if you, and you couldn't have known that's not on the real estate listing. You couldn't have known it. Um, But if you, if we had moved onto a street that was full of 11 year olds or nine year olds, my daughter's quarantine experience would be a hundred times different than it is now. And that is absolutely affecting her life. It's affecting my life. There's, there's no way to know when you move onto a street where you look at, at uh, a bunch of yards and you think we're, you know, we're only two blocks from the elementary school. This is going to be paradise that it turns out that the street that you're on is just Paradise for kids that are five years younger than yours. And then the elementary school, when we moved into this neighborhood, had an 8.5 rating out of 10. And in the two years we've been here, it has fallen to a four. Wow. Well, there's nothing we you could, you can't have known that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: that's just, you know, the school districts ha, ha, made some terrible choices and the quality of the elementary school has gone to, to hell and we experienced it. Like when, when our daughter went there, it was not a 8.5 school. It was a, it was a, a bad experience for her. So for me, I just feel like my path through life, I never bumped into a, I never just happened to run into my Jedi Um, and it's too bad. It's not that I wasn't open to it. I think probably more than a few potential Jedis sat on the other end of a long table while I sat at one end going, and then I said, that's not a helicopter. That's a basket of tomatoes. (laughs) And the 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 Jedi at the end of the table is like, well, maybe not today, <laughs> um, or whatever. You know, right. just it, it it all happens the way it happens. But Peter felt like a fellow trainee, someone else, just a year or two older than me, who had a lot of talent. And seemed on the verge like I did of knowing how to do things. We were in our mid twenties and I had only been sober for what felt like hours and Peter didn't have a drug problem, but he, you know, was also similarly just kind of unfolding his wings Mm -hmm. and we were living in this incredible moment in time. I realize now where There was nothing, you know, like it didn't feel like the living was easy, but the living was easy (laughs) relative to, um, how it is other times. Uh, you did, you know, you could work 20 hours a week and afford to be able to sleep in an alcove at the top of somebody's stairs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were, it, um, you could we were living in a time when if, if somebody said, what do you do? Um, you answered, you answered them by saying what your art was. Um, nobody cared what your job was. Not nobody's job was what they would, what they did. You know, Oh, you work in a shop or a cafe or place or bar probably. But you know, if, if, but what you did was try and make some, song or story or something and so i followed peter around those first months and uh, you know just kind of like modeling how to walk around what do you do if you're not going around trying to get high all day how do you just walk around looking for something else what else are what else is there to look for and peter i think really really um Imprinted on me too. The two of us were very dark and cynical, and and uh, we would walk for hours. We would walk all through the night, we're pouring rain. I don't remember what we were talking about. Talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. But you know that transition to really what became my sobriety, which was through that house and that group of people, I found that there were, that there was a whole universe of people who were not drug addicts and they were all around me all the time. I just had never noticed them before and they were fascinating. They were, they were making music and writing plays and, and studying dance and doing all these things that, that at 25, uh, was just that, that, that was who I Wanted to be, that was who I imagined. I, I didn't even, I I don't even think I had the imagination to, to have thought those people up. But once I saw them, I was like, and you know, I'm not saying that any of them went on to win the Tony award. They were just regular people, but they were regular people who were, who were pursuing, um, the arts as a life. Mm -hmm. One of them in fact did. Win a Tony Award. So uh-huh. let me take that back. They were the kind of people that one of them at least won a Tony Award, mm-hmm. just recently in mm. fact. But my relationship with Peter was was extremely intense, very romantic. You know, like romantic in a Byronic sense of just like we were inseparable. I think probably if you were, um. You know, if you were a person like given to swoon mm-hmm. that Peter and I did come across, we would, we, we probably walked into plenty of parties and it seemed very like Heathkit. kit. Um, people probably swooned, uh, because we were both extremely dramatic and probably, and both tall and handsome and, and, um, and also, both completely oblivious to people swooning over us for the most part, which is even more swoony. I mean, mm-hmm. when I th- when I when I think when I think back and when I hear stories about that time, I think that he and I were pretty romantic.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but we were mostly just focused on each other in a lot of those cases. Like at the at the end of the night, we would always go find the other and go ready to get out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like we were out on the prowl, right? trying to find girls we were trying to find truth but of course a relationship like that ends up being um unsustainable and part of it is that uh you know neither of us are ever neither of us ever want to be um i mean we're both the cats who walked by their wild loan but eventually we each had a band and we each started to take our band a little bit more seriously. You know, we each put together a band. We didn't, we never put a a band together together. We understood that we were each the songwriter and singer. And so we needed separate bands. We each put a band together. We shared a practice space, but it was just the, the, It was just the little ins and outs, you know, like we were, we were two people, neither one of whom was ever going to be the one to change the toilet paper on the roll when it was out and the center couldn't hold. And we had a falling out all the way back in the nineties and went a year without talking and then had another falling out still in the nineties and went a year without talking Mm. And then we're friends again and had another falling out and it still was in the nineties. I mean, this all, this is all between 1994 and, and 1999. It's a long time. Um, in grunge years. Yeah. Oh yeah. But so for most of the two thousands and 2020s, Peter was, a, you know, ha- evoked the same feelings that, that an ex-girlfriend that you wished it had gone better with. Yeah. I'd run into him places and it would be like, Hey, Hey, you know, and we'd sit and, you know, we're very familiar. We have all the same sort of in jokes and whatnot, but it's always uncomfortable. He, he, he was the first, he was my first choice to play bass in the long winters. He joined the band and then quit the night before our first show oh
0: that's not good
1: and we took the stage at our first ever show without a bassist oh come on because he decided the night before that uh you know we were too commercial or some shit Mm. you know he was just like (laughs) such a snob yeah i had offended him i'd said something that offended him and he had too much pride and quit the band um he's a great musician he would have been a great bass player in the long winters but i'm glad we ended up with eric but over the course of our lives right peter never overcame never he, he he continued to fight his demons but he never found a path through all of his demons where he where his his talent and his artistic nature were ever able to really take flight and i think that's been the that's been the the most tragic aspect of of my friends in seattle is watching so many talented people not crater none of them OD'd and died mm-hmm. really not not i'm talking not this not this generation of them right because they weren't drug addicts what happened was they just never found the path all the way through all the obstacles of life to a place where they were able to make the thing that they wanted to make and have that thing take wake wing somewhere along the line, they, you know, they got into that habit of thinking where they were like, well, I got, you know, I've I got this opportunity to do this show, but my boss wouldn't give me the two days off. And, you know, I got to have a job because I got to pay the money on the practice space. And it's like, the only reason you have a practice space is to do the show. The only reason you have a job is to pay the money on the practice space. Don't put the job over the show. Always put the show over the job. But, you know, that's that's real easy to say. And it's real hard to do. And you can have, you know, you put up a show, it doesn't go. You put up a second show, it doesn't go. You put up a third show, it doesn't go. Here's your fourth show. And, you're, and the choice is lose this good, because you've had the same job through all four of those, and your boss has been great, and you get to that that crossroads where it's like, well, which is more important to you, this actually really good job that's been supporting you through all your art, or this fourth show after three have failed? And if you pick the job at that moment, it's the sensible thing, and there's also no arguing with it but that's the day that you're never going to ever really put on a show again. You know, that's the day that you picked your job over your show. (laughs) Right. And again, I don't say that judgmentally because I've watched a lot of incredibly talented people make that decision. I only say it in the retrospective of 25 years later, looking at the whole cast of people I know and the ones that, um, the ones that are still working primarily as artists are not necessarily the talented ones or the most talented ones. They were all talented, but they're the ones that never picked the job over the show. It's just plain as that. And some of the very talented ones did pick the job over the show. Now, the thing about Peter is he didn't pick the job or the show because Peter has Continued to live as a kind of journeyman, (laughs) um, you know, like a carpenter or just somebody. I mean, of the 50 things Peter's good at, carpentry isn't even in the top 50. But he just sort of did that kind of pickup work, never picked a career, never picked a, you know, never chose the art overall. Just kind of picked the path of least resistance. So he became a person that was just like, uh, every time I saw him, a a source of complete heartbreak. But I also Mm -hmm. wanted always to please him. I always wanted to, when I saw him, to try again. Even when our lives had completely diverged, even when we were both 50 years old. Like, you know, hey, we should go get a cup of coffee. And like, I don't know what, like, try again. Put on a show. Maybe we should put a band together. You know, none of those things is he initiating or expressing any interest in. It's all just, you know, me like trying to, trying to connect with my first love. And sadly, I ran into him right about the time that I bought my new house and said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm working for this guy. You know, I'm doing tiling for this company contractor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, cool. Who are they? Oh, this guy, you know, his company that I work for small, you know, 10 of us do house remodels. Oh, I just bought a house. I need it remodeled. Like, give me his number. Oh, okay. Well, here's his number. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to get Peter to help me work on my new house. Right. He's got a great eye. He's a real artist at heart. And, um, and I'm going to use Peter's company and it's going to, you know, somewhere inside of me, I'm thinking it's going to bring us back together. Right. And we're going to get the band back together. And, 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 uh, and this is going to be the thing that, you know, like Peter's going to find a new, he's going to realize that what he really is, is a designer. And, uh, or something, you know? And so this, so that's how I picked my contractors. And from like the fourth day, Peter never came by the house again, had other things he was working on, um, just sort of, uh, found a way not to be there. And I don't know why, probably because it's too close or probably, or maybe he's just not interested, but you know, the guys that are working on the house are not artists. They're not, um, they aren't people from 25 years ago that I really want to collaborate (laughs) on, collaborate with on finding old space age light fixtures. Right. They're just, you know, they're people that are just trying to get the, this job done. And, um, you know, and are dealing with somebody, in this case me, who says, I found these things on eBay. I thought you could use them instead of the things that you bought at Lowe's. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. But we need you to choose these plumbing fixtures uh, from this list of plumbing fixtures available at Lowe's. And I look at the, list. And I'm like, well, I don't want any of those. Those are all garbage. And they're like, well, we can't finish the plumbing until we get something to put there. And I'm like, well, I've got some searches on eBay. I'll get back to you when i you know, like I've been, a, am sure a nightmare to work with, but I ain't living in that house yet.